You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson, as the old saying has it, hardly needs any introduction. Uh, It's great to welcome him back to this series of Conversations. The author of many, many books, uh, resident fellow at the Hoover Centre, Stanford University, uh, and indeed, I think fair to say, the world's most prominent economic historian. Neil, thank you very much for your time. Now, we're hearing understandable calls for Israel to finally wipe out Hamas, not just for the sake of the Israelis, but for the sake of the Palestinians. How does uh, history suggest this might not be very easy? Well, it's certainly not easy. Uh, That goes without saying just in terms of the sheer tactical operational challenge of rooting Hamas out of Gaza when it has an entire network of of tunnels. Uh, It's almost the hardest military undertaking that ground troops could be asked to perform. But there's a broader point that I think you're getting at, John, and that is that if you were able to get rid of Hamas, suppose you were able to get rid of every single trained terrorist, how long would it be before another organization uh, came along? After all, Hamas is in a sense a successor to uh, a previous uh, version of the same concept, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, a more radicalized, a more Islamist version. And presumably, if Hamas were eradicated, but the predicament of the Palestinian people remain broadly the same in Gaza, something as bad, if not worse, would come along. I think that's too negative, too pessimistic a view, because it seems to me to imply that the Palestinian people are incapable of doing anything other than uh, support terrorist organizations. I think it's more accurate to say that the people in Gaza have been under the rule of a terrorist organization, Hamas, that many of them would uh, dearly like to be rid of, that ordinary people in Palestine wanted better economic opportunities than they had, and they found Hamas has stood in their way. Hamas is a corrupt criminal racket. Like a lot of terrorist organizations, it is also a crime syndicate because that's how it works. That's how the business of terrorism works. Because it's expensive business. Of course. Uh, You don't uh, necessarily get given all these weapons for free. Uh, So what Hamas does is it takes the aid that naive Western governments pour in uh, to the Palestinian people, steals it, sends it to uh, the high-end residences that its leadership occupy in Qatar, uh, and uh, dispenses the money uh, on uh, the the reign of terror that it uh, maintains. So I think it's possible to get rid of uh, a cancer like that from a society. You have, however, you must create better opportunities for the people in Gaza after this war is over. Uh, Because if you don't do that, if you don't solve that fundamental problem, then it's likely that something similar, if not worse, will come along. Two sort of questions arise out of this for me. The first is that That sort of urban warfare is horrendously difficult. They've done a brilliant job of booby-trapping things, putting command headquarters underneath hospitals and what have you. They don't seem to care about local people at all. They've got all the fuel and 
other resources they need to keep people fed and look after the humanitarian needs, but they don't seem concerned about that. Nor, by the way, do many of the uh, Islamic nations around Gaza. But that trench warfare or urban warfare that's so hard, so booby-trapped in every possible way, political as well as you know, sort of physical, as it goes on and civilian casualties mount, where do you think the West in its ambivalence will go in calling, you know, firstly for restraint, then proportionality, then pauses? And how might that play out in terms of the public relations? Well, I think the whole idea of the initial terrorist attacks on October the 7th was to provoke Israelis so much that they would simply have to retaliate and send a significant force into Gaza. Uh, And this was, and I'm sure the Israelis understood this from the outset, uh, intended to be a trap. Uh, And once Israel is entirely committed uh, to this Gaza operation, then other fronts open up. There's a good deal of unrest uh, and violence in the West Bank already. The risk is that Hezbollah escalates uh, with a large-scale bombardment uh, from Lebanon. Uh, There are uh, forces mustering in Syria. Uh, Israel could soon find itself fighting a war on multiple fronts, and the Israeli defense forces could be very, very stretched indeed. The problem in the West, uh, and here I'll have to draw some distinctions because there's no uniform story here, but the problem broadly is that within a very, very short space of time, the shock that I think responsible people felt, the horror that we felt at the initial terrorist uh, attacks has given way to a very carefully organized wave of protest uh, in support of the Palestinians. Uh, And this wave of protest has been seen as far afield as uh, Sydney, uh, London, and the campuses of elite universities, uh, including Stanford, where I'm based. Uh, Now, this is remarkable. For example, to see 2,000 sociologists put their names to a petition uh, in solidarity with the Palestinian people against the so-called settler colonialism of Israel is astounding because where were these 2,000 sociologists in the 24 hours after October the 7th? Where was their statement of solidarity with the people of Israel who had been the victims of a horrendous terrorist atrocity, a kind of trailer for a second Holocaust. They were conspicuously silent. And that's the most shocking thing, it seems to me, about parts of Western society today, that there are people who feel extraordinary indignation on behalf of the Palestinian people, but apparently no indignation on behalf of the the Jewish people, the Israelis, who were initially attacked. I also find it extraordinary the moral equivalence that people suggest between terrorists murdering innocent women, children, babies, putting babies in ovens for heaven's sake, and the Israeli Defense Forces retaliating uh, in a way to to target the perpetrators, going out of their way to minimize civilian casualties. Hamas doesn't care about the people of Palestine. It doesn't care at all. Hamas actually has built these tunnels not as shelters, but exclusively for its own military use. And when a leader of Hamas was asked about this, his response was, well, the tunnels are for us. It's the problem of the UN to look after the Palestinian people. This level of hypocrisy ought to make any reasonable person in a democratic society outraged. But instead, we have so many useful idiots Uh, in academia, 
uh, as well as on the left of the political spectrum, who take up the cause of the Palestinians and apparently feel no sympathy, no empathy for the sufferings of the Israelis who were the initial victims of this upsurge in violence. I find that outrageous and disgraceful. So we actually find, as uh, uh, Henry Ergas has pointed out in The Australian, one of our really thoughtful commentators, that we're in an extraordinary situation where there are people in our midst who rejoice at others rejoicing at death and mayhem in the spirit of Nazism, whereas the Nazis at least had the shame to try and hide what they were doing. That is really, surely, pretty condemning of us and highlights a problem. Um, the barbarians, as Constantine Kissin put it the other day, are no longer at the gate, they're inside the gate. Well, this is certainly true, though. It's worth remembering that a good deal of Nazi violence against the Jews uh, was quite open and public. The, the things that were kept secret were the death camps, but nobody had any illusions in the 1930s that the Nazis intended uh, a terrible fate for the Jews. I think the strange thing about all of this is the generational divide that's opened up. It is very remarkable if you look at polling in the United States, uh, Britain or uh, on continental Europe, that older people strongly sympathize with Israel uh, and younger people uh, strongly sympathize with the Palestinians. Uh, and in fact, the youngest age group surveyed, uh, the age group 18 to 24 in the US and in the UK, it's strongly anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. And that's why when you look at the protests uh, that you see in support of the Palestinians, they're very youthful uh, when you look closely. And I think there's a very good reason for this. Uh, and it's an extremely important point that some of us have been making for years, that the universities, and to an extent the schools too, have been systematically infiltrated by propagandists in favor of Islamism uh, and uh, anti-Zionism. And we are now reaping the harvest of allowing the infiltration of higher education by radical leftists and Islamists. That's the best explanation, I think, for this generational divide. It's not just that the passage of time has somehow dampened uh, public sympathy for Israel. I think it's something much more sinister than that. What does it say about a, the intelligence to be the moral compass of the people over the last few decades who have run our academic institutions? Well, I think what's happened has been a kind of unwitting leftward uh, lurch. Liberals uh, of the 1968 era, the anti-Vietnam types, uh, thought when they saw the radicals of the next generation that they were seeing a reflection of themselves, ah yes, to be young and radical again. And they appointed people who were far to the left of those anti-Vietnam liberals. And one obvious distinction is that the anti-Vietnam liberals were at least in favor of, of free speech. But the new generation of, of leftists aren't liberal at all. They're against free speech, nor are they secular. They're highly susceptible to uh, the Islamist arguments, which is remarkable when you consider some of the other things that they believe. They passionately believe in LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, they passionately believe uh, that uh, there are 55 but, but the genders. people they're supporting in those Middle Eastern countries don't. Well, exactly. This is what's so bizarre about this coalition that's formed. It's a strange, unholy alliance 
between uh, Islamists and radical leftists com completely obsessed with identity politics, so obsessed with identity politics that they don't recognize that the Palestinians are not just another minority like the uh, transgender rights activists, but are really part uh, of a global Islamist movement that is profoundly hostile to all the things that they care about, particularly when it comes to, to gender. So it's a very strange and I think unintended consequence of the pension uh, that liberal professors have to hire people further to the left of themselves. Well, to follow through, I'm making the point that the longer this goes on, the louder the calls are likely to be for, you know, pull up now, you know, you've gone far enough, don't smash Hamas, you can hear it coming already. That's one side of how things might unfold, but there's another one that's directly related to what you've said, this influence in the West, the barbarians are in here, universities, the people in the streets chanting, gas the Jews. Incoherent immigration policies in many Western countries has allowed that to happen in many ways. What can we, it seems to me that we must face the very real possibility of some very ugly things being launched within the West against the West uh, by radicals, by extremists, by terrorists. I mean, look at the poorest borders in America. Who knows? They wouldn't know who they've got there now. How, do we really know who's in Britain? Do the French know who they've got? Well, of course, there have already been some uh, terrorist attacks uh, in France uh, in the last uh, four weeks. And I don't think it's unreasonable to worry that in the overheated atmosphere that has uh, been generated since the October 7th attacks, there may be a, an upsurge of the kind of terrorism that we got all too used to uh, in cities like the one we're in, London. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was on the London Underground before October 7th, and I was thinking, that's funny, I no longer worry about a, a terrorist attack uh, as I go through Piccadilly Circus and the Tube. Well, I'm back to worrying about it now. The question is whether they will go down that road on a large scale, because they may not need to. The calculation may in fact be that non-violent methods are working better mm. than violent methods in turning the West against itself. Now, this is an extremely important distinction that not many yes. people understand, but my wife, Ayan Hirsi Ali, wrote an entire book about it, about dawah. Everybody knows jihad. Yes. Everybody's heard of the idea that you should make war on behalf of the Prophet. But the point that Ayan has been making for years is that it's just as insidiously effective, maybe more effective, to engage in a peaceful proselytization on behalf of uh, Salafism and other forms of radical Islam. And that's what's going on. And what's so difficult about this process of the peaceful spread of radical Islam is that we, in our open societies, can't do much to stop it. We can stop terrorism. It's very clear that we can stop people engaging in violent criminal acts. But it's much harder to stop radical preachers going from Muslim center to uh, Islamic center uh, making their arguments if they don't explicitly uh, engage in violence. They can speak violently, they can talk about violence, they can even uh, preach the annihilation of the state of Israel, but there's, there's nothing we can do under our current laws to prevent them engaging in that kind of thing. Uh, and so I think that's part of the problem that we face. It might be that there'll be another upsurge in, in terrorist violence, I don't rule that out. But it might be that they concluded that that's not actually the most effective way to get what they want. 
You often hear people say, draw a distinction, radical Islamists from other Islamists. So there are many, many groupings in the Islamist world. But part of the picture you're painting, I think, as you mentioned about radicals moving from center to center is that they're radicalizing. Yes. And there seems, perhaps as a result of fear, I don't know what other factors are involved, a great reluctance for moderate Muslims, as they're often categorized, to stand up and say, this is outrageous, we won't support this idea of slaughtering others and celebrating it in the name of Allah. It's not giving Allah a very good name, I wouldn't have thought. Well, this is a, an ongoing battle. It, it goes back to 9-11 and even further back than that uh, within the Muslim world. Uh, there was a moment just last week uh, when a woman in Gaza uh, mourning her dead son shouted that this was all the fault of Hamas. And immediately she was, she was grabbed and her mouth was covered and she was uh, bundled away because Hamas runs, uh, of course, uh, an unfree society uh, which rules by fear. It, it is difficult to be a moderate or reformist Muslim. In fact, it's dangerous to be a Muslim who speaks out against uh, the extremists uh, because they face real threats to their lives. And if, like my wife, you leave Islam, and become an apostate, then you are uh, fair game. Then you are somebody who, according to Sharia law, should be killed. Uh, so it's dangerous to speak up against uh, the radicals. That's in the nature, I think, of, of Islam. Import the Arab world, become the Arab world? Well, there was this old uh, line about Arabia 20 years ago, I can remember thinking that there might be something to that notion that if immigration continued at the levels that we were then seeing, there would be a fundamental transformation of European societies. Uh, and I think there's some reason to think that uh, if, if a, a million people are to march through the streets of London on Remembrance Day, uh, that that will bear out all those dark uh, prophecies of 20 years ago. But I'll enter a, an important cautionary note here. I think it's a mistake to think that all that we are seeing uh, in the form of protests that implicitly condone terrorism is a consequence of immigration. I don't think that's right because I'm an immigrant. I immigrated to the United States. My wife uh, is an immigrant who came from Somalia to, to Holland. And if one looks around the world, uh, it's almost impossible to imagine uh, the United States without uh, immigration. Uh, broadly speaking, immigration allows people to get uh, from countries where they can't be very productive to countries where they can be more productive. And on balance, there's a clear net benefit. It's not immigration that's the problem. It's the failure to assimilate, the failure to integrate, the failure to explain uh, to some immigrants what the deal is. If you come to a society, whether it's the United Kingdom, Australia, the United States, you have to accept the norms, the laws of that society. And if you don't, if your allegiance remains to some other power, then you're not fulfilling your side of the implicit contract. So I think we shouldn't make the mistake of blaming what we see and find appalling on immigration. I think we should understand that there have been terrible failures of assimilation and integration, and these were avoidable, uh, but not 
many people listened no. to Ayan when she argued, uh, as she did about 20 years ago nearly, that this was the mistake that the West was making. Is it only a question of assimilation, though, or does it, should it have required some more careful thinking about the sort of, if you like, requirements of people who were coming to the country in the first place? I think back to a conversation in about 2003 or four, after the Lockerbie disaster was cooling and Colonel Gaddafi was being slowly welcomed back into the international community, or at least not frozen out altogether. And his son, Saif, who at the time was studying in London at LSE, and an Australian exploration company wanted to do some exploring in Libya. Saif was in Australia. I was acting PM. John Howard was on holidays. I met with him. He was very agreeable, immaculately dressed in a white linen suit and purple shirt and designer beard. And uh, I thought, well, he said, yes, uh, we've only talked for two or three minutes. What do I discuss now? So I said to him, can I ask sensitively, can a practicing, believing Muslim embrace participatory liberal democracy? And he talked for 45 minutes. He could have just said no. But in essence, his answer was, no, we essentially believe in a theocracy where the mullahs run society on behalf of Allah as judges, interpreting Allah's writings and will, uh, not a democracy, the rule of the people, so to speak. And I thought to myself, this is a serious issue if you're going to talk about assimilation and, 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 and cooperation and integration. Well, that was quite an honest answer on his part, since his father had come to power in a revolution that proclaimed itself uh, Islamic. Uh, it wasn't just a military coup that brought Gaddafi to power in, in Libya. Uh, so I think it's right to recognise that there are profoundly different political traditions. And you don't need to take it from me, it's well established in books by authors such as Bernard Lewis. The whole point about Islam is that it doesn't recognize a distinction between mm. mosque and state, the way Christianity recognizes a distinction between church and state. Islam is both a religion and a political philosophy. Mm. And that political philosophy is not compatible with democracy any more than Sharia law's version of the relation between the sexes is compatible with uh, the modern institutions and norms of the West. That's the problem. Uh, and so it makes it hard, uh, indeed it makes it very difficult indeed, for assimilation to be as successful with a large-scale influx of Muslims as it was with the large influx of Jews that happened over 100 years ago when there was a great migration out of Eastern Europe, out of what was called the Pale of Settlement in the Russian Empire, to Western Europe and uh, North America and, and elsewhere. Uh, so I think that very important philosophical distinction is real. But I still think it's possible uh, to be a believing, devout Muslim and to respect the norms of a Western democracy if that's where you've chosen to live. And I see plenty of people who are able to do that in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And those people, law-abiding, hardworking and loyal uh, to the country where they live, want nothing to do with the thugs uh, and, and, the, and the fanatical preachers who are constantly trying to disrupt their communities. So we need to do our best to support them because this must be a challenging time for them, as it is for Israelis. 
you and I would both have Jewish friends who are shaken to the core. Absolutely. As with a lady just over here in London. I had no idea she was Jewish. And she told me she was and started to, to cry. Now, my first thoughts are with my Israeli friends who are currently fighting uh, for mm. the lives uh, of their fellow citizens, for their mm. families, for their state. Uh, but I feel a great deal of sympathy uh, for my Jewish friends around the world who feel that the nightmare has come back, yeah. a nightmare in which anti-Semitism ceases to be the despised ideology of a defeated fascism, but is reborn in a new guise, uh, in, in a strange new guise, in which it's supported simultaneously uh, by Islamists and radical leftists, that unholy alliance we talked about before. This must be a nightmare uh, for any uh, Jewish family. And I, I feel strongly, as somebody who's studied Jewish, Jewish history for much of his career, I've studied the Holocaust. I wrote a book on World War II, The War of the World. I feel in an intense sense of sympathy and loyalty to the Jewish people. Because we must never, ever allow something like the Holocaust to happen again. And we must recognize that what is being implied by chants such as from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a second Holocaust. Yeah. That the wiping of Israel from the map, which is the stated purpose of Hamas, the stated purpose of the Islamic Republic of Iran, implies a second Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And we saw in the atrocities of October the 7th what that Holocaust would be like. We, who are not Jews, uh, who are Christians, have a profound moral obligation. The German uh, Foreign Minister uh, Herr Habeck said this very eloquently just uh, this week. We have an obligation, and it's not just true for Germans, it's true for all of us, yes. to ensure that that can never happen again. And that's why you know, our first duty, in my view, is to ensure that the proponents of the Second Holocaust are crushed, are defeated, and as defeated as the Nazis were in 1945. Well, this leads to some very big issues. First of all, um, as we watch the forces of darkness uh, uh, almost attacking Israel and, and, and Jews, let's be honest, uh, as though they are the little Satan, uh, and of course that means that they have in their sights the big Satan, which is America. And a Jewish person said to me the other day, we're suddenly very concerned that Mr. Biden might be the last Democrat who will really support us. And American support's always been very important indeed for Israel. And as you talk about what's happening on our campuses, the radicalization of, or, or, the, or the, sorry, that, that might be the too strong a word, but the loss of support for Israel amongst younger people, paralleling in a way, the way baby boomers, 75% say they still say they're proud to be American, but only 15% of under 25 year old Americans, they've, miffed, they've moved a lot. If they become the feedstock, if you like, for tomorrow's Democrats, Will American support for Israel stay strong, in your view? Well, the polling shows very clearly that Democrats are less supportive of Israel than they were 10, uh, mm. 20 years ago. Uh, and it's also clear that, that younger Democrats have really moved mm. quite decisively uh, away from support for Israel to downright hostility towards it and support for the Palestinian cause. So. It's clear that that implies a shift 
in the orientation of the Democratic Party. It's well known that Joe Biden's not the only elder statesman in the Democratic Party. Uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, are full of elderly Democrats. This is a, a gerontocracy in some ways. As that generation reluctantly relinquishes the reins of power, uh, it will be undoubtedly replaced uh, by politicians who don't feel the same strong sense of identification that, say, Harry Truman uh, felt. Israel needed the support of the United States to be born and to survive the turbulent early decades of its existence. And so we must have, I think, real cause for concern that that sense of uh, identification and, and support is ebbing. Uh, because without it, I find it hard to see how Israel can be secure. Going back to uh, the first time we talked on camera, I asked you what you saw as the great threats to Western freedom and prosperity, and you said in ascending order, uh, extreme Islamic terrorism. Well, hello, here it is, writ large. Then the possibility of miscalculation between the superpower, rising superpower, we're all worried about what China might do out of this. But you said the greatest threat was our own lack of belief, you know, the rejection of our history, our ideals, our values, and what have you. So it leads into the question, can we do a bit of a Cook's tour of what we're confronting? Plainly, the world is now very, very dangerous. The Middle East looks horribly unstable. I'm, you know, there's a lot of warships too, by the way, uh, now accumulating in the Mediterranean. It's not just those two aircraft carriers and the supporting fleets. Uh, there's a lot of other people there for varying reasons. Um, uh, and we've got that going on, the Middle East looking horrible. Iran, you know, uh, uh, American support uh, for Ukraine, at least on the right end of the uh, Republican Party, looking a little shaky. You're an expert on China. Uh, how does all of this look? And we've got to think in terms of intent, willpower, the thing you were talking about. Do we believe enough in our own values and in a global order that works? Do we have the capability? Uh, and uh, you're a brilliant economist. Do we have the economic strength? So that's a big question, but can we have a bit of a look at these things? Well, I, I should disclaim uh, two things. I, I'm not really a an expert in China, and I'm not an economist. I'm just a historian who tries to make sense of a complex world. So let me have a yeah. go. Uh, I think we're in Cold War II. We've been in Cold yeah. War II for yeah. about five years. Yeah. Uh, People's Republic of China has taken the place of the Soviet Union. The United States is still the superpower of the Western world. And as in Cold War I, there are certain, I think, clear implications of that. Because this is a Cold War that is ideological in nature. Xi Jinping makes it very clear that he's against democracy, he's against the rule of law, he's against individual freedom. It's also technological, like the first Cold War. It's a race, not just for nuclear weapons, though it is that, but it's also a race in artificial intelligence and quantum computing. It's mm. geopolitical. It's about particular regions, flashpoints, such as, uh, as Taiwan. And it's economic because China is a much larger economy than the Soviet Union mm. ever was. So this is Cold War II. Now, Cold Wars are not entirely cold. One characteristic feature of the first Cold War was that there were hot wars here and there. Uh, the first hot war was really in Korea. I think Ukraine is really the Korea of our times. It's a war that broke out. Uh, 
to the great surprise of many people in the West, didn't surprise me because I think Putin, President Putin made his intentions pretty clear. Uh, but it was a revelation and it made many people realize uh, that the stakes are higher than they thought and that the other side is prepared to fight dirtier than they expected. President Putin would not have invaded Ukraine without a green light from Xi Jinping. He would not be able to sustain his war effort without very large-scale exports uh, from China to Russia of dual-use technologies, things that may be civilian in uh, one place but can equally well be used in the battlefields uh, of Ukraine. So that's point one. As in Cold War I, the Middle East is a really important place because despite the best intentions of the Greens, we are still a hydrocarbon-fueled world. And that is still the place where the most crude oil is in the ground. And, and that means that as in Cold War I, so in Cold War II, the Middle East is of huge strategic importance. And any collision there, any eruption there, has geopolitical ramifications. This is not just Iran backing its proxies to carry out an attack on uh, Israel. Russia plays a part in this story too, because Russia has air defense systems in Syria that can track every Israeli warplane the minute it takes off. So geopolitically, we've got to adjust to the fact that we're back in that world mm -hmm. that you and I grew up in. And we thought it had gone away in 1989 or maybe in 91 when the Soviet Union mm. fell apart. And we thought we were going to have this endless peace dividend and everything was going to be awesome. There would be only one superpower. It would be the United States and we would live happily ever after and globalization would make us all rich and it would be win-win with the Chinese. We believed that yeah. from the 1990s through the first part uh, of uh, this new century and the scales only fell from our eyes quite recently. Uh, and that, I think, is where we are. These three theaters of conflict, number one, Ukraine and Eastern Europe, number two, on Israel, number three, potentially the next shoe to drop, Taiwan, are not separate. They're part of a global struggle for power. And that struggle is fundamentally between the free world, as was true in the first Cold War, and an unfree world with a bunch of ideologies of which communism, Marxism, Leninism is still one, that are deeply hostile to the notion of individual liberty. I think it's just hard for us to accept that we're back there and that the interwar period is over. But that's the reality. So the Ukraine is critically important because if we stop supporting it and it fails and the Russians succeed, they've got their first major stroke against us. So it's really a conflict for the whole of the free world. And we need to keep that in mind. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think it's all too likely that Ukraine will lose uh, on our present trajectory because we have given the Ukrainians up until this point enough weaponry not to lose, but not enough to win. If our interest wanes, and it is clearly waning amongst Republican voters and Republican politicians in the United States, if support wanes, and it could be cut off if Donald Trump is re-elected president in November of 2024, then I don't see how Ukraine can win. In fact, it seems to me that it's quite likely uh, that Ukraine loses. 
We have reached a very critical point in that conflict. A stalemate has been arrived at. The Ukrainians themselves mm. acknowledge this. Their offensive this summer achieved far less than they had hoped. In terms of raw resources, it's David v. Goliath. But at this point, Goliath looks more and more the likely favorite. If Russia wins this war, or if it, to put it very, very modestly, if it is able to retain control of those parts of Ukraine that it currently does control, that land bridge, so-called, that extends right down Japan. to Crimea, which it annexed in 2014, that will be the first big defeat of Cold War II for the West, because we were all in. We were all in in our support for Zelensky. How many speeches did Western leaders make in support of Ukraine? How many promises did they make? How many pledges were there to be there for as long as it took? If we lose, our credibility is shot. And then turn to the Middle East. What if there is an all-out, multi-front assault on Israel? The Israeli defense forces are stretched to breaking point and the United States does not intervene, simply carries on lamely calling for some kind of diplomatic resolution. What if those aircraft carrier strike groups just sit there and do nothing to impact Iran, the sponsor of this multi-front attack? Then what? You'll have lost Ukraine as an independent state, potentially. Then the fate of Israel hangs in the balance. It would be surprising, wouldn't it, if Xi Jinping didn't take the opportunity to add Taiwan uh, to the strategic mix? Because how exactly would the United States respond if Taiwan were blockaded by China tomorrow? I don't like to think how the conversation in the Situation Room would go, as the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs explained that it would be rather difficult to send another major naval expedition across the Pacific to run that blockade, particularly because if that were to trigger hostilities between the US and China, a much larger war would ensue than anything we've seen so far. So this is a very dangerous moment in world history. And I think we've stumbled into it, partly by forgetting the lessons of Cold War I. And the most important lesson of Cold War I was you must have credible deterrence. You must credibly deter the Russians or Soviets as they were then from sending their forces uh, into Western Europe, from intervening, which they nearly did in 1973 in the Middle East. We've lost that credible deterrence. We failed to deter President Putin from invading Ukraine. We are failing to deter Iran now from attacking Israel through its proxies. And I really worry, John, that we're going to fail to deter China from making a move against Taiwan. And in that scenario, the West will find itself in a worse situation than it was at any time in the first Cold War. That's very chilling. Um, can I ask about the importance of the relative economic strength of the West versus China? Uh, there's been a lot of revisionism in recent times. China's peaked, population on the way down, deeply indebted. In some ways that possibly means a wounded bear is more dangerous than a than a healthy one, uh, but surely much greater is the perception that we can't hold it together in the West. America's forces are presumably, from lack of funding, not in tip-top shape. 
they're having trouble keeping up replacing what they're already expending. Not that they're always interchangeable. The weapons you use in Ukraine may not be relevant to Taiwan. Nonetheless, you're getting a big drawdown. It's costing a lot of money. They spent $113 billion. A lot of Americans must be utterly frustrated that with the honourable exception of Britain in particular and some of the Eastern European states, there hasn't been the willingness to really step up for a long time from a lot of Europe. Um, what are the economic factors uh, here? Because you need a lot of money and a lot of resources to keep all of this going. Well, then we've got a you know just uh, eye-watering debt problems. I mean, you're in a situation where, as I understand it, in the U USA now, their interest bills just overtaken their annual defence bill. Right, and that's a really important place to start. But let's just look at the situation of the United States, which is still the world's largest military superpower and still the world's largest economy. Everything is therefore fine. No, it's not fine. And it's not fine because that defence budget is inexorably going to be squeezed because of the massive amounts of borrowing that the federal government has engaged in since the financial crisis, then the pandemic, uh, and more recently as a result of, I think, misguided fiscal policies. The debt to GDP ratio is now around about 110%, which it last was at the end of World War II. More shockingly, the, def the def deficit uh, this year is running at around 7% of gross domestic product, and that's near full employment, an extraordinary figure. So US fiscal policy is out of kilter. And the problem with that is uh, that as interest rates have risen, uh, to combat the inflation that I think was one of the unintended consequences of Joe Biden's first year in office, the cost of servicing that debt has gone up enormously. And so debt service is eating up a much larger share uh, of federal revenues than it was in the period of zero interest rates. Of course it is, because rates have shot up. And that's right, as you just said, uh, probably this quarter, spending on servicing the federal debt will exceed uh, spending on uh, national security, on defence. I've said for many years, it's one of my old uh, historical axioms, that any great power that's spending more on debt service than on defence is probably not going to be great for much longer. There's a huge need for fiscal reform in the United States. There's no sign that the political class gets that. In fact, neither party seems serious about fiscal reform, and that, that's been true for nearly 10 years now. Uh, so that's a really important reason to be concerned about the ability of the United States to project power over multiple uh, theatres uh, over the next 10 years. But it's worse than that, John, because fiscal numbers don't tell you the whole story. In the last 20 years, there has been a fundamental shift in the balance of industrial power. Back at the beginning of this century, in about 2002 or three. U.S. manufacturing value added was twice that of China. Those roles have been reversed. Today, China's manufacturing value added is roughly twice that of the United States. China is, is the workshop of the world. It is the arsenal of autocracy. And the U.S. is no longer really the arsenal of democracy. And that means that if it comes to a conflict between the United States and China, it's the Chinese who can supply their armies far more readily with the weapons of war. Uh, with all that stuff that it turns out, look at what's happened in Ukraine, really matters. You need a lot of shells, 105 millimeter shells. And if you run out, you're in trouble. Well, the United States would run out of precision missiles within a week 
of a war with China. So that is another reason, perhaps a bigger reason to be concerned. And finally, you asked about China's strength. It is true that China's economic growth is slowing. It is true that the demographics are dire. The workforce is shrinking. The population could half between now mm. uh, and the end of this century. And it's also true that the dynamics around the property sector, indebted property developers, are dragging the whole economy down. But I don't think that makes China less dangerous. I think, if anything, that elevates the risk of a strategic confrontation. Because the Red Emperor knows that the legitimacy of Chinese communist rule will be undermined if the growth rate slumps from five to three to, to near zero, as I fear it may in the coming decade. And that is what concerns me most, that a weak authoritarian regime historically is much more likely to lash out than one that feels confident. Hitler did not go to war in 1939 feeling confident. He went to war partly because Rearmament was no longer sustainable under peacetime conditions. That was one of the rationales for gambling on war in 1939. The Japanese went to war, uh, not because they felt confident, but because they felt that they were being crushed by economic sanctions. So I think the lesson of history is be most worried about the authoritarian regime when it is in the greatest economic difficulty, when you've successfully applied pressure to it. That may be when it lashes out. In the face of all of this, is Victor Davis Hanson right when he says that the appalling reaction in America, uh, in academia particularly, to Hamas has so stirred American citizenry that they may at last be prepared to say, we want better, we want leadership, we don't want to be pushed around. That sort of almost Anglo quality of leaving it until it's a quarter of a minute to midnight before you stand up. Do you see any evidence? I mean, there has been real pushback against the universities, hasn't there? But might that extend into a sort of a demand that, you, that, that, that Washington actually gets real about the challenges before us? It's always dangerous to generalise from the politics of the university campus <laughs> to, to the national level. Of course, it's been gratifying for me and for my old friend Victor to see at last mm. some kind of response by alumni as well as trustees to the ways in which uh, university leaderships have tolerated increasingly illiberal behavior by undergraduates. I mean, it's good that finally the uh, donors are saying to Harvard and to Stanford, uh, what the hell? I mean, I wish they'd said it 10 years yeah. ago when these problems were already pretty evident, but it's good that finally, as I put it in a piece for the Daily Mail, the woke jumped the shark and uh, uh, elicited a backlash from an, an otherwise hitherto complacent donor and alumni class. But I don't think uh, we can really say that uh, the whole society has turned. Because in a way, if I look around the UK and, and the US, there's a lot of indifference there's a lot of apathy if you look at yeah. uh, the attitudes that, that people have on these issues. I mean, looking at the British polling as we're sitting here in London, you can see that there are people who feel very strongly engaged on one side or the other, Israel or Palestine. There are a lot of people 
who just don't care. And in the United States, the prevailing emotion, I think, uh, in the public is isolationism. They really don't want to get involved in any of these conflicts. The reason that they feel increasing disillusionment with Ukraine is just that the thought of money going to a war in a place that many people would struggle to find on the map goes against the grain when there's a sense that things are not all right with the US economy. And the same applies, I think, to the Middle East, and the same would apply uh, to Taiwan. So although there's a certain amount of anti-Chinese sentiment when you look at polling in the United States, when you ask people, well, what would you do about it? Would you send troops to Taiwan? The answer in the event of a Chinese invasion, the answer is, well, actually, on second thoughts. So I think the problem is that while there's been a backlash against the excesses uh, of woke students on campuses. I don't think it translates into a general revulsion against the mentality that that personified. Well, that's hardly good news in a way. A couple of last things before I relieve you of uh, (laughs) the task of uh, exploring these troubling issues. I suspect that it's probably fair to say that there are a lot of countries in Asia that are very, very uh, concerned about whether or not America really, and, and, and the West, can be relied upon. Do they have the will? Do they have the capability? If it looks too uh, weak, they might go to accommodate China, find ways to back off, accept that you know, we're going to be under their heel. Uh, I would have thought uh, one notable exception to that, that people don't focus on enough, is Japan. Still a very rich country. Um, hasn't completely lost its willpower and has a surprisingly powerful military with a navy with quite long projection. How much of a balancing factor in all of this do you think Japan really is? It's not to be underestimated, I would have thought. Until until quite recently, probably the Chinese navy would not have been able to wield the Japanese. Certainly at the moment, the Japanese navy combined with the Americans would not only have, I would think, superiority on paper, my guess is their technology would still be a long way in front. Any thoughts? Well, I think you're right to say that Japan is a formidable a military and naval power. Uh, I, I was discussing this with Henry Kissinger not so long ago, and, and he observed that while Europeans like to talk about strategic autonomy, the Japanese are actually getting there. And this is a kind of victory from beyond the grave for Shinzo Abe, because his vision was that Japan would emerge from its period of of post-war shame and be able to regain uh, its its military uh, autonomy. Mm. The way I would think about this is that Cold War II is a trans-Pacific war. Cold War I was transatlantic. What mattered in Cold War I was the US uh, alliance with Western Europe. That was really the important alliance. In Cold War II, it's actually the US alliances with its Asian allies, including Australia, that matter much more. And that's why American efforts to build up a a new alliance network, AUKUS with Australia and the UK is part of this, Uh, the Quad is a more important part of it. These are really important initiatives. Now, it's clear that the most important partner in the Quad uh, for the United States is Japan not only in terms of its firepower, but in terms of the role it would play in the event of a war. Mm. If there were a war over Taiwan, Japan would be absolutely crucial to America's chances of winning that war. It would be the Japanese Air Force that would need to take out 
Chinese missile and air bases on the on the mainland. So Japan matters a lot, and they certainly look on with disquiet, worrying that the United States may no longer have a credible strategy for the defense of Taiwan, or may no longer be wholly committed to Taiwan's uh, defense. But there's another side to this, which I think we should we should reflect on. There are other Asian countries uh, that mm. look and think, we don't want to choose. We're doing too much business with China. It's nearer. We would rather avoid taking sides in Cold War II. Which is kicking the can down the road horribly, well, but... It, 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 was a, it was a strategy for some countries in Cold War I to be non-aligned. Mm. My sense is that there'll be more countries wanting to be non-aligned in the second Cold War. And there will be quite a lot of countries in Asia that will prefer to take uh, that road. I'm not even wholly convinced that India has thrown its lot in unambiguously with the United States. Because what I see is an India that will say one thing to Washington and another quite different thing uh, to Beijing. So we, I think, must be very careful not to assume that it will be as easy for the United States to build up an effective alliance system in Cold War II as it was in Cold War I. In fact, I'm quite worried that if it were to come to a showdown uh, in the coming uh, months and years, not only over Ukraine, but also over Israel and over Taiwan, I'm not sure how many countries would be there with the United States in all three of those conflicts. Not many. If you're a Average citizen in America, and there'll be a lot of them I know, or Australia or Britain listening to this conversation, what hope would you offer them and what can they do? Everyone needs to man their station. This is the age of disengagement. What can ordinary citizens do? Well, I think the first thing is to recognise that isolationism is not an option. The idea that you can simply pull up the drawbridge and say, a plague on all your houses, we're gonna focus on our domestic priorities. That so tempting notion, which Americans are drawn to periodically, it's not available. There is no way that the United States could exist in its own cocoon in a world in which uh, the People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party were dominant everywhere else. Uh, there's no way that the United States could quietly get on with mowing its lawn if the Middle East were under the control uh, of the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran. And so I think the first thing to recognize is that you can't opt out. And the same applies to the United Kingdom and the same applies to Australia and for that matter, distant New Zealand. I mean, there are some billionaires who imagine that they could get to New Zealand and somehow avoid World War III. I'm sorry, World War III is for everybody. You don't get to opt out. The second thing I would say is that the most important battles are at home. Yes. Before we need to take our arms, we need to make sure that we know why we might have to fight and what we would be fighting for. Those of us who've argued for years that there's something rotten at the heart of higher education, I think have been vindicated in recent weeks. And I think it's now very clear that the time has come for radical reform of our educational system. It cannot be reasonable to delegate higher education to the left of the political spectrum and expect good things to happen. The reason that the young generation has lost faith uh, in its own society, thinks Western history is just an untrammeled 
tale of slavery and exploitation is that we delegated higher education to the radical left. So step two is, let's try to fix this problem. We can't have an, an education system that has turned into an indoctrination system. So we need reform of higher education. We need new universities like the one that I'm engaged in trying to found uh, in Austin, Texas. We need a whole bunch of new universities that will offer a different approach to education in which the ideals of individual liberty and of a free society are front and center not things to be derided uh, in some kind of Marxist-Leninist re-education uh, program. Thirdly, we need to recognize that without economic strength, we cannot hope to prevail in a contest uh, against a totalitarian regime. And so some of the things that we've been doing in recent years, the extravagant, reckless fiscal policies, uh, have to end. Uh, we must put our societies and our market economies on a healthier footing Otherwise, we won't deserve uh, to prevail. We didn't win the first Cold War by accident. Uh, the Berlin okay. Wall didn't come down by itself. There had to be a concerted effort by a self-confident West that didn't sneer but cheered when Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We have to recapture some of that idealism that motivated me when I was a student at Oxford back in the 1980s. We need to recapture that and remind ourselves that there was nothing inevitable about victory in Cold War I. It could have gone the other way. Yeah. So those are my three steps. Isolation is not an option. Higher education has to be reclaimed from the radical left. And we have to rejuvenate our market economies so that we have the means to prevail in this second Cold War. Thank you for your incredible contribution to our freedoms, frankly. Uh, and for your time tonight. Thank you for yours, John. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.